0: Docks of church. You guys can grab a Bible if you've got one and turn to 1 Corinthians. So we're in week two of what's really going to be a long series for us through this book, 1 Corinthians. And if you were here last week, he kind of, he opens this letter to this, this church in Corinth but basically before he's going to get into some of the issues that are in this church, and we're going to figure out like there's a lot of issues in this church. Like if you're, if you're new to church, maybe you're coming here and you, you're like skeptical of like, eh, I don't know if the church is really like that great of a place. Well, uh, this church in Corinth will convince you of that. Uh, this is not a great place. This is a really broken group of people who are trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus. And So there's going to be some things that are problematic. But he starts off last week, Rob taught, uh, just a, he's saying, hey, before we get into the issues, I want to remind you of who you are. And the most like, important reality you need to know is that you were called by God. That's why you're saved. That's why you're in Christ. It's nothing in you. You weren't smart enough. You weren't the right kind of people. God didn't see some kind of like inner giftedness or kind of purity of soul that's like he could see in you that no one else could see. He says, no, actually you were just like everyone else. But God in his mercy and kindness and grace, he called you to be saints together and to fellowship with his son. And really the whole rest of the the book of 1 Corinthians is really just about trying to get this church, this group of Christians, to live their lives as though that were actually true. And so he starts now in the the second half of chapter 1, getting right into this first issue he needs to address. Um, And we need to listen closely. We need to listen really closely. We need to focus our attention on This passage this morning, this this sermon, I I don't think this sermon is very good, but the passage is amazing, okay? I'm I'm serious. The passage is amazing, and so we need to focus on the passage and the text because I think that actually if we understand what Paul is saying and what he's trying to get across to this church, I think that if if we understand this or if we don't understand this, I think is actually the difference between us living a life of a ton of effort that ends up being wasted in the end or actually living a life of purpose where the things we do actually matter in the world. And it's not the difference you'd think, right? Oftentimes we talk about like, what are you orienting your life towards? What are you about, right? Are you about making money or are you about the things of God? Now that's like a really clear distinction, right? But what he's saying here is he's saying, no, it's actually not even just what are you orienting your life towards? What are you about? He's saying actually the way you go about building that thing will determine Whether it matters or not. will determine whether it has power or not. So, let's read this. And we're actually going to read the whole thing. So, 1 Corinthians 1, 10-31. And it's kind of a long chunk, but we're going to read all of it. Because I think this text is really um, important for us to hear in full. Okay, this is what it says. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree... And there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. Okay, so he's kind of writing these letters back and back, back and forth, right? And so he's, he's hearing, like, there's this thing going on. And so Chloe's people have told him about this issue, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. Now, Cephas is actually just another word for Peter, the Apostle Peter. Or, I follow Christ. So that's what's happening. There's these kind of these factions that have these kind of, you know, tag lines attached to them. There's the, I follow Paul's crowd, I follow Paul crowd. And he says this, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized um, none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And, oh, I did actually baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. But look what he says here. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to do what? To preach the gospel. Now look what he says next. And this should honestly stop us in our tracks. He says this. I was sent by Christ to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Wow. There's a way you can... Preach the gospel, use the word, but the form you put it in would actually make it completely ineffective and powerless. That is stunning. Why? Verse 18, which says, For the word of the cross, meaning like its, its ethos, like the thing, the substance of it, the word, the message of the cross, is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's these two different groups of people. Those who are perishing, those who are being saved. To one, it's foolishness. To the other, it's not wisdom, power. He's going to say it's wisdom later, but just notice that difference. For it is written. There's this thing that God is doing in all of this. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? He's basically just listing like all the A-listers in society, people of status and power and privilege, people that you would look at those people and say, man, if we could just get a scribe kind of on the home team, like then we'd really have some influence in the world. People would see us as really legitimate. And he says, where are these people? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, Meaning by his design and his great idea, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God instead to actually, through the foolishness of what we preach, save those who believe. Then he continues on in verse 22 and he says, For Jews they demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but this is what we do. We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose... What is foolish in the world. Why? To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose. He specifically chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not. To bring to nothing things that are. And what's the point of all of this? Everything he's saying. Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. There's this issue going on in the church at Corinth, and it's this surface thing, right? They've got these factions, these tribes that they've kind of built up, and it's, it's Actually kind of a hilarious thing, right? You have like the I follow Peter crowd and they like made t-shirts and they have like a secret handshake and they're like, we don't really like Paul. He's weird, right? We're the Peter people. And this is like a ridiculous thing, but there's this quarreling, this disunity. And what he's going to do is over the next three chapters, he's going to actually like use this surface level disunity as like a lens to basically try to highlight this deeper disunity that's happening on the level of their soul. He's like, you actually have this deep incongruence at like the deepest part of who you are. And there's a fight going on inside of them of how they're going to live their lives. Because these are people who really desperately want to remain great in the eyes of the world and all those around them. And yet they have chosen to follow a Christ who was crucified. And those two things cannot exist together. And so the issue, let's just start here. There's this quarreling, this division, this disunity that's happening in the church. And in verse 12, he gets specific, right? He says, this is what I mean. Each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. Now, if you kind of read the New Testament, you may have heard this name before, but most of us are not familiar with Apollos. Apollos is kind of one of kind of the teachers, like he's an itinerant preacher. He's going around to the churches and apparently he is, amazing okay like he's incredible and everyone's like we got to hear this guy he's powerful he's eloquent and he's such like a high level of oration that even like non-christians would want to come and just like listen to this person talk because he's just great at speaking apollos and then also there's this group i follow cephas this is the apostle peter right he's kind of like the dude who's been charged by god to lead the church incredible leader bold influencer and then there's this other group that says i follow christ and so these factions and tribes have basically built up in the church around which one of these people is the best, is really worth following, worth kind of adhering their allegiance to. And now here's what you think Paul would say. You think, at least for me, you'd think he'd say, hey, um, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter, and then I follow Jesus Christ. Um, you first three groups are dum-dums, right? <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Like, None of these other people died on a cross or was resurrected or, I don't know, is the Son of God incarnate. Like, you should get on the right team, right? The last group is correct. You'd think that's what he'd say. Seems pretty obvious to me. Now what he says. What he does is he says, actually, there's something that all of you are doing that is equally problematic. And you actually are doing the exact same thing. You're just following different people, but you share the same problem. Well, what are the words that are the same in all these statements? It's not Paul, Peter, Apollos, Christ. Those are all different. The two words that are the same are what? I follow. I'm doing it. I figured it out. I've got the right guy. And there's something in this person that I value and actually has worldly value and status so that because maybe Peter is a strong influencer type leader, like this dude could be a great CEO. He ran a fishing business after all. So he'd probably be really good at leading the church. That's the kind of guy I want to follow. So I follow him. This isn't actually about the leaders they're lining up behind. It actually rarely is, right? When you see like two dudes in opposing football jerseys, like fighting after the game, like that means it wasn't about which team was better. It means it was about which one of them was better, right? It's the whole point of like glorifying in sports, right? It's like, it's not about which team is better. It's like, I've identified with this team and I am better than you, (laughs) right? That's what it's about. And actually that's exactly what this is about for them. It's not that they have an affinity for these people. It's not that they're trying to like heap kind of, kind of special status on them. This is a means of exalting themselves over the other people in the church by attaching themselves to someone that they think is particularly great. They say, I follow Paul. I know these other guys are pretty good, but Paul is like the real guy. And I can see that. He's the best leader. He's the most powerful in his preaching. And actually, I was baptized by him. I follow Paul. And what's so insidious about this is they actually do the exact same thing to Jesus. There's some people in the group and they kind of look at this back and forth, bickering over, you know, which kind of apostle and which leader is best. And these people actually stand and they place themselves above the whole group and they say, oh, you sad, sad people arguing over which mere mortal is best. I follow Christ. And in that moment, that statement that sounds so right, I follow Christ, Even though it's the right words, it's become something entirely different for this group of people. It is used not as a means of humility and service and devotion to God. It does not bring with it dependence and awe and worship. But actually, that statement is used as a means of boosting their pride and self-accomplishment and posturing themselves above others because these people are following mere men, but I am following the Son of God. what is happening is they have oriented themselves in the direction of, of the things of God. That's a good thing, right? Like these people used to be like, I follow this temple prostitute. Like that was their life before they found Jesus. Like really broken and messed up. And so now they're like, I follow Paul. He's awesome. He taught me about the crucified Savior. I follow him. I want to be like, I want to image his way of life. And so these people have actually oriented themselves in the direction of the things of God. That is good, but... They have still held on to the value system of the world and the way the world defines greatness. Does this ever happen in your heart? This is something that these people did, but this is something that we all do. And actually, this is something I do. As I've been praying through this passage, like this passage actually has really wrecked me this week um, God is like exposing things in me in areas of pride and self-sufficiency and actually worldly thinking that I did not know were there and this passage is revealing those things in my heart and I have actually realized this even in this process we're going through of trying to to decide like which city are we going to plant a church and where do we feel called to go and I've actually noticed this worldly way of thinking even similar phrases come out of my mouth. And I'll say things like, well, I know that some people would maybe go to this kind of city or this kind of people, but I am gonna go to this place. And whenever there's something about how you follow Jesus or, or even the things that you have in your life that you feel ambitious to go do these things with Jesus, if there's those things end up causing you to compare yourself to others or even subtly posture yourself other, over, over other people for some reason, if that's what ends up happening because of the things that you're doing for Jesus, then that's happening because you're really only using Christian words and phrases, but actually you're still playing the world's game. Right? I follow Paul, but you're still using the world's metric system of what makes people great. You're trying to do the Lord's work, but you're trying to accomplish it in the world's way. Even though you've chosen to follow the crucified Messiah, you still end up living by the world's value system of determining greatness by the ways that the world says this makes you great instead of the cross. Francis Schaeffer, he has this Um, This chapter in a book. It's also a sermon called The Lord's Work, The Lord's Way. And if you want to be convicted, you should listen to that sermon or read that chapter of the book, because I think it's actually really instructive and stunning for people like us who are trying to follow a crucified Savior and yet really want to be seen as cool and great in the eyes of the world. And this is what he says. He's talking about spiritual power. It's actually, the title of his sermon is actually called Tongues of Fire. He's like, We want to be people that like speak and like build the kingdom of God in a way that has power. And so, even when we share the gospel, we want it to be like our tongue is on fire, right? Like spiritual power. How do we get that? And he says this Well, it's not just about giving our lives to do the work of the Lord. You have to do that. You need to have the right kind of initial direction, right? Do the work of the Lord. But he says the way you actually become someone who's spiritually powerful and the way you actually get a life where actually the outcome of your, your life is real, effective change in the world. He says it's actually by so believing in the greatness of the cross that you actually start to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. Meaning we start to actually value weakness instead of strength. We start to value dependence Instead of self-reliance, we start to value humility and all of the humiliation that comes with it instead of pride and honor and respect. And we start to actually pray for God to do things more than we try to manufacture them with our own hands. And not just value them in kind of our head and our hearts like we know we should as good Christians who know our Bibles. But we actually try to actually live out the value system of the cross in our lives. Which is a very different thing than just proclaiming in our heads that we believe it's true. We start waiting more on the power of God instead of trying to move forward the kingdom of god with our own power and our own skill sets. In other words, we start to live as though god really exists and is actually powerful to change our world. And the problem is that this way of living is it's really simple, but it is really hard. It's really hard. Because oftentimes it feels like losing. It doesn't feel great to live that way. Because, you know, when you stand there at at the foot of the cross and you see Jesus doing what he did, we know by the whole New Testament that is stunning, great victory. Do you know who thought that when it was happening? No one. There was no group of people who were there who were looking at the humiliation and defeat of Jesus on the cross and saying, "Oh my gosh, this is incredible. It's like the end of a Christopher Nolan movie. You didn't see it coming, but is this going to flip upside down, and then there's going to be this labyrinth thing, and then in the end, he's actually winning by what he's doing." No one was saying that. Every single person was looking at that man on the cross and saying, "A failure." He lost. He failed. He was conquered. This person absolutely failed at everything he was trying to accomplish. Humiliation, not victory. Sometimes what looks like losing in the eyes of the world is often what actually is winning in the eyes of God. And the problem is we don't want to be losers. We want to be winners and oftentimes if we're true we care way more about if the people around us in our neighborhood or our peers think we are winners than if god thinks we're winners and so francis Schaefer in this in this sermon he says this it's profound he says the central problem of our age is not liberalism it's not modernism it's not progressivism that's spreading through the church it's not the threat of communism socialism or capitalism like choose your own adventure there you know whatever you think is the problem it's not rationalism And it's not the kind of monolithic scientific consensus that surrounds us. All of these are dangerous, but they are not the primary threat to the people of God. The real problem is this. That the church of Jesus Christ, individually or corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh instead of the spirit. He says the central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. Meaning the problem is not that God just has maybe not brought this fresh wind of revival and it's not that our enemies out there are so great. The problem is actually that we as Christians refuse to go about God's work in the humiliating, degrading, cross-shaped way that he says this is the way of power. And so Paul is saying, do you see, Corinthians, what you are doing? You're trying to follow a crucified Messiah while still clinging to the world's value system of power, intelligence, beauty, money, influence, fame. You're posting on your social media page about Jesus Christ who was crucified and then living your whole life trying to get the very things that the cross says have no value in God's kingdom. You're arguing about which person is best, who preaches the gospel of the crucified Christ by using a value system that the cross itself is in direct opposition to. That makes no sense. And look what he says in verse 17. It's just like the statement he's transitioning to the next bit of thoughts. And he says this, for Christ is not something to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Now, this should stop us in our tracks, okay? Paul's distancing himself from this baptism thing, right? Because he's like, hey, I, I know I baptized a couple of you, and I know that like Crispus, like you've been telling people like, well, I, Paul baptized me, therefore I'm better than everyone, right? So he's like, uh, I'm going to distance myself from that. I'm glad I only baptized a couple of you. And really, Christ didn't send me to baptize. What he sent me to do is to preach the gospel. But look what he says. Not in words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Words of eloquent wisdom. What is he talking about? Well, this is like the oration style of the day. And we don't like care so much about this, right? Like, sure, there's TED Talks that you could look at and be like, this is like a great, you know, framework for speaking. But that's not what he's talking about. This was like a really big deal. Like oration, wisdom, the power, persuasion, wisdom, and logic. Whoever was the most skilled at this type of oration had massive power and status in the world and had the ability to influence and move a crowd in a certain direction. It was a skill set and people loved, loved it. And people thought, man, if we could just take the gospel and put it in this form, then we'd really have something special. And Paul says that there's actually a way of speaking the gospel, a way of displaying the message of the cross that doesn't improve it, or it doesn't even stay neutral, but actually it diminishes and empties it of its power. This week, me and Steffi, this weekend we went skiing. We did go skiing, we tried to go skiing, we prayed for snow, God sent rain, which, you know, is tough, but it's, it's all right. Someone else was praying for rain that was more holy than I was. So anyway, we got rain and we were skiing. And so we we're trying to ski for two nights and we were in a hotel one night. And so Stevie's like taking a nap. And then I remember like on the television, I'm just flipping through, I'm like, this is kind of fun. You know, Silas is at home with my parents. Don't have a lot of time to watch TV. And this movie comes on that I have not seen in at least a decade, I don't know, Fast and Furious. I know, okay, a deep track a long time ago. I remember watching, and so I was like, okay, I'll watch a couple minutes of this. And I remember being shocked, horrified even, because what I was watching on the screen were these cars that people had attached things to that did not belong on them, okay? Like front-wheel drive cars with like massive wings and spoilers and body kits and like neon lights everywhere, right? Like you, you guys have seen this, you know this, right? And the reason I was so disturbed by this is because when I was young, I thought that was cool. I was so about that. Like I remember having conversations with my dad about how I wanted to get neon lights under my car and I thought it would be awesome and I wanted to put a big spoiler on. And so I was having this moment of realization where I was like, oh my goodness, I was wrong. Those are terrible ideas. It doesn't make a car better. It makes it worse. Now, I'm sorry if you have that on your car, but a spoiler does not make your car faster. It actually slows it down aerodynamically, okay? So anyway, there's things you can put on your car that make it worse. What Paul's saying is this. You can do things with the gospel like that. Things that you might look at and go, no, this is really, really good. This is actually impactful. It's powerful. The world says it's great. And so if we attach this to the cross, it will actually only make it better and it will fly faster and further. And Paul says, no. No. Not only will it not go further faster, but actually you will end up diminishing the power of the cross of Christ. Why? Well, it's because the values of the world The things that the world views as great and worthy of glory, status, power, wealth, beauty. You can continue to name so many things. They are the exact opposite values of the cross. If you take the message of humility and weakness... And you deliver it in a kind of powerful, persuasive, manipulative way that society values. This lofty oration of the day—you do not make it more powerful and effective. You actually make it less powerful. And you may actually draw a bigger crowd. Like there are things that we have talked about. We could do at Doxa Church that would actually make probably more people come here. Like we—we we have a good band the band could be better. Like we could actually make it better. We could do more smoke, more lights. We could add so many subwoofers in here that you'd come in and go, I think, I feel the spirit of God, right? Like you, we can do things so that someone would come in and they would be amazed by what they see. We actually do have a skill set to do that. We choose not to because we want this to be about Jesus Christ, not about things the world says are valuable and great. And Doc's a church, we're actually kind of on the razor line of that, aren't we? Because this church is cool. It is. I look at Rob and I'm like, God, that guy's strong. Like, that's cool. I want to follow him because he's strong. And I hear Jesus saying, That doesn't matter. I like that we have this cool backdrop, whatever this is. Jesse made this, it's cool. You know what's not cool? A cross. It's not cool. You can't make it cool. You can't put glitter on it and make it sweet. It is brutal and it is horrific. And so I think even as docs of church, as people we value the cross of Jesus, we need to be really careful that we don't become the kind of church that starts to push forward things the world says are great, thinking that that will somehow make the cross more palatable to the world. Because Jesus says, no, 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 the cross is not, you you can't do that. It doesn't fit together. It is foolishness to the world. And this is Francis Schaeffer ends like this in his sermon. He says this, if this war the Christians are fighting, which make no mistake, if you're in here and you follow Jesus, you are waging a war for the souls of this world. If in this war, Christians win a battle by using worldly means, then they have really lost, they've lost. Meaning if we do things that the world says, these are great, these are awesome, and actually you can take these strategies and you can copy and paste them from here to Silicon Valley, and this is what grows our church. He is saying if we win that battle using those methods, we have really lost. On the other hand, when we seem to lose a battle by waiting on God and waiting on his power, Even if it seems we're losing the battle, we have really won. The world may mistakenly say, look, they have lost. But if God's people seem to be beaten in a specific battle, not because of sin or lack of commitment or lack of being willing to pay a price, but because they have waited on God and refused to resort to tactics of the flesh, then the church has won. Because the cross of Jesus and the ways of the kingdom of God, they are unintelligible within the system and the wisdom and the philosophies of the world. The world values strength, power, but the cross symbolizes weakness. It is weakness. The world values a conqueror, but the cross symbolizes being conquered. The world values a crown, but the cross symbolizes a crown of thorns. The world values the place of privilege and status. And isn't that so badly the place we want, whether we have it or we're fighting for it in society? But the cross was outside the city gate, the place of the marginalized and the poor and the destitute. Those who have no standing and respect to be inside the city so where you die is outside the gates and what this means is that the world's values and the values of the cross are not different but they are the opposites you can't be cool and follow Jesus you can't you can't live a life that the world looks at through and through and says this person is honorable and respectable and great and intelligent and follow a crucified savior Cannot happen. And if you feel like, no, that marks my life, that's true, then my guess is you have a very distorted view of what it means to be crucified. Or you may claim Jesus with your mouth, but actually your life is living as though power and status and success are the things that actually define greatness for you. They can't exist together. The world's value system and the value system of the man on the cross. One of those value systems will inevitably consume the other. Always. You will either become someone like Peter. Do you know the story of Peter? He, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus was praying to his father, saying, is there literally any other way to do this? Like, I, I want glory, and I want to save humanity... Is there any possible other path other than one of weakness and humility and desecration? Because that's going to be horrible. And God the Father answers, no, this is the path. And then as Jesus says yes to that, I will do that. I will follow you. I, I, will, I will do this. I will lay down my life. I will be humiliated. I will go to the cross. Then who stands in his way? Peter. Peter. And Peter pulls out his sword and he cuts off a dude's ear. Jesus, you know, picks it up, puts it back on because he's Jesus. He's like, sorry, that's just, just always been fine to me. And you have this moment. I used to think that what was happening in that moment was that Peter was like displaying this like foolish, reckless love for Jesus, Right? Like Jesus is gonna be taken away by these people and he's like, no, I love this man. And he uses his sword and uses his strength and power to defend Jesus. That's not what's happening. What Peter is doing is he is defending himself. This is self-preservation because he knows what it will mean for him if the one he follows gets crucified. It means no more standing with the people of the world no more honor, no more status, no more privilege. When the one you follow is put on a cross, it means you yourself are going to be humiliated. You are marked with humiliation. You know, we put crosses up on our Facebook pages, we post on them, we we wear them on our shirts, we even put them on our bodies. And the reality is what we're trying to do with that is we've kind of turned the cross into this status symbol of privilege and honor and respect. And so when someone has a cross on them, you say, wow, this must be a really spiritual person, really moral person. That's not what the cross signified. It signified absolute abject humiliation. And that was the symbol that Jesus gave to his people and said, here, wear this out into the world. And so what Peter does is he picks up a sword and he goes, no, I don't wanna follow a crucified savior. I thought we were gonna go into Rome and you were gonna be on a horse and I was gonna be next to you and we were going to win and conquer. That's what I want, not this. Don't we feel that? Don't we feel that with Jesus today? Like Jesus, why do you have to be so poor? Why do you have to be destitute? Why do you have to be homeless? Why do you have to wash everyone's feet? Why do you have to be like this? Because I don't want to be like that. I want to be great. And Jesus says, follow me. I'm showing you what greatness looks like, even though it doesn't feel like it. The world does not understand what Jesus was doing on the cross. It doesn't make sense to them. And because so much of our heart and soul is shaped by the world, it doesn't make sense to us half the time either, does it? But he says that actually this is by design. He says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved by it, it's the power of God. And look what he says. He says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Look what he says next in verse 20. He says, where's the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, meaning by his purpose, by his design, the world did not know God through its own wisdom, but actually it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, And Greeks, they seek wisdom, but we preach something different. We preach Christ crucified. It's actually this, like, contradiction in terms, right? Christ, like the anointed one, the coming one, the powerful one, the coming king, and crucifixion, humiliation, desecration, destruction, and death. And he says, our gospel is both of those things combined, and it never is a real gospel message if those things are not combined. We don't just follow Christ, we follow Christ crucified, and we preach Christ crucified, and this message is actually in itself a stumbling block to Jews. He says it's foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, meaning nothing in them, but called by God. Both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God, I love this, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men he, what he does here is he's, he's basically saying yes the cross is foolishness to the world it is he's not trying to prop it up as something that's like well no if you think about it differently it actually makes sense according to things he's like no it's foolishness it is a paradox it is the complete upside down opposite reality of every single system of thought the world has come up with of what is great and valuable he says no jesus has the opposite of that intentionally and he says that there's two groups of people. There's Jews and Gentiles, right? And he kind of breaks them up, Jews and Greeks. It's like, like looking at all of humanity, separating them into two groups. And he says that the Jews, they seek signs. What does this mean? Well, the Jewish people, they were looking at Jesus, even when Jesus was on the cross, right? Like he's on the cross dying and they're literally standing at the base of the cross, calling up to him saying, Jesus, if you're really the son of God, come down. Like use your angels, use your power, use strength, use might, work a miracle, come down from the cross and then actually lead us in conquering the Romans. And if you do that, we will believe you and follow you. You have the power to do that, just do it. And then we'll really believe you're from God. And one commentator says it like this. He just says, the demand for signs, these Jewish people becomes like the prototype of every condition that human beings raise as a barrier to being open to God. We say things like, well, I'll devote myself to God if he heals my child. Or I'll follow Jesus if he will keep me from suffering. Or I will acknowledge Jesus as Lord if he performs this specific kind of miracle on demand that removes all doubt. And the commentator says it this way. He says, in every case, what we are doing with these barriers is we are assessing him. He is not assessing us. I'm not coming to him on his terms, rather I am stipulating the terms he must accept if he wants the privilege of my company. In other words, what Paul is saying is that God has designed salvation specifically so that it does not satisfy those obligations. He goes, no, 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 I'm not going to play that game. I'm not going to come to you on your terms and it's so interesting because it says Jews seek signs. And the whole Bible's filled with signs. Like the dude took a couple loaves of bread and fish and he multiplied to feed 5,000 people. He walked on water. He rose from the dead. He did signs. He just didn't do the exact signs they were demanding. And he could have. But he didn't. And it says it's by design because he will give you the only kinds of signs that will show you that you must have come to him on his terms. Those are the kind of signs he'll give you. And then it says, Greeks seek wisdom, right? These people, they'd created an entire system of thought that allowed them to think that they had been able to explain everything. All right, the Greeks, there's the wisdom, their logic, their rationalism, their kind of understanding of like the cosmos. They're saying, well, you see, we really figured out these things and we believe them to be true. And so this whole crucified Messiah thing, we hate to tell you, but it just doesn't fit into the rest of the story. You see, we have a very coherent system. We have lots of evidence, and well, it's really all complex, don't you see? And you really need to have read all the relevant literature, but we know that this doesn't fit. It just can't be true. And so this crucified Christ becomes a stumbling block to those who would require God to use his power for their purposes But the crucified Christ also becomes foolishness to those who want to uphold their rationalism and their mind as a primary force in the universe. And God says that this is by design. It's intentional. I remember when I was in college, I was a sophomore, and I had given my life to Jesus my freshman year. And I, I shared the gospel with my friend Jordan, Jordan Iliff. He's this redhead super just fiery dude. And he he became a Christian freshman year. And he's like, literally would sit in the back of my car on the way to Salt Company and would literally ask me questions about the maps in the back. He'd be like, I don't understand these maps. I was like, dude, what are you doing? Like, no one reads the maps. Like, you're in the wrong section, bro. Like, come on. He was like trying to figure out, he knew nothing about the Bible at all. And I remember my sophomore year, I had these friends, They were deeply, deeply involved in the scientific community. We used to grow up, we grew up Christian. I went towards Christ. They went towards the world. And so I tried to follow them there. And so I was reading all of this scientific literature. Like I was deeply engrossed in everything from evolution to astrophysics. I'm trying to keep up with them, where they're going, and this system of logic and rationalism they're building. And what ended up happening was I had read so much of this and I was so deeply ingrained in all the evidence for these things that all of a sudden that framework and way of understanding the world started to not fit with Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I didn't know what to do because I had this system that was coherent and it felt powerful to me. There was evidence. I was reading scientific papers about these things. And then I had this carpenter from Nazareth who died on a cross. And I didn't know how to combine these two things together. And I had a massive crisis of faith. This is like a real. And I remember my friend Jordan, young jordan i know so much more about the bible than jordan knows at this point in time and he sat me down and he was like david read this and he had me read these verses where's the one who's wise where's the scribe where's the debater of this age has not god made foolish the wisdom of the world For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, and actually it pleased God to save people through something as foolish as a cross. And I didn't realize this then, but what was happening in my heart was that the thing that was so hard for me was I did not want to worship a Jesus who was crucified because I couldn't actually explain that in a way that was respectable to my friends. That was the problem. I wanted so bad to have this system of logic and rationalism that I could actually stand on and feel good about myself and say, no, 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 no. I've actually read all of the things. I've studied all the history and I actually have just done my homework. So I actually know Jesus Christ died on the cross. I know this happened. And actually it's really logical. And if you just work hard enough, you'll figure it out too. That's the kind of faith I wanted. One that I could actually stand on and say, I did it. And Jesus said, no. You can't have that because at the end of the day, what that will cause in you is that on the final day when you meet me face to face, what you will do is you will say, thank you for the grace, that was awesome. And also it's really good. I worked so hard to figure this out. And he says, no. The cross is foolishness to the wisdom of the world and you can't boast in anything. And then this is how he ends it in verse 26. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. And notice he doesn't say not any, right? Like there's people in the church who are powerful, rich, wealthy people. He's not saying no one. He's just saying this is not the pattern. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Do you have anything in your life that you feel is valuable and worth boasting about? Anything. Could be your looks, your style, It could be the amount of books you've read. It could be your PhD. What the entire New Testament would say is it would say, run from that pride. Run from it. Because God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And the things that the world looks at and says, this is a great person. They're very intelligent. They're very smart. This is a great person. They've done really well for themselves. Their business is very successful. Jesus looks at those things and says, those things don't matter at all. And actually, sometimes those things are actually the very things that keep people from pursuing the kind of humility you need if you want to be a spiritually powerful person. What Paul is saying is that the cross of Christ has overturned and shattered every man-made philosophy or a system of meaning. He's like, none of them showed up on that day in front of the cross. Like the scientists weren't there, the ascetics weren't there, the poets weren't there, you know, like the economists weren't there. Every single system of meaning that human beings came up with, it led none of us to the foot of the cross that day. And instead there were just a couple thieves, those who were shouting words of condemnation and a couple of his friends who were very confused and very sad. And he's saying this is by design. So that actually those who choose to follow Jesus would choose to follow him in faith, not in their brilliance or in their morality, not in their goodness, not in their power, not in their strength, not in anything the world would look at and say, this makes sense that God would choose you because you are a great person. No, we actually become like Jesus, who is humble and lowly, and not in the humble kind of way the world looks at and goes, oh, this is a really awesome person because they're humble. Humble in a humiliating kind of sense, where the world looks at you and goes, this is ridiculous. You should not give your money away like this is ridiculous. You're better than this. Why are you living this way? In a way, the world looks at you and actually slowly starts to distance themselves from you in the way you would distance yourself from someone who was crucified because they're getting blood in your furniture and they're disgrace to the kind of image you want to present to the world. The cross of Christ, listen, it's not just, a, it's, it's not just what Jesus did to buy us salvation. That is what it is. That's the center of it. It's substitutionary atonement. Jesus in our place. He is paying the price for our sins on the cross, but he is also giving his followers a pattern of the life. They are to live if they want to be truly great and they want to have the kind of power he promises us. Do you believe that? Like, I'm serious. Do you believe that the cross is actually the, like the things that happen on the cross are actually the things that make someone valuable in this world? And you go, if I could just be that humble, then I would be great. Do you believe that? Or do you believe what the world says and just say, no, if I could just have a little more and I could have a little higher position at work and I could make a little more money, then I would be great. These are opposites. And you cannot have both. The cross of Christ is not just a picture of the cost of salvation. We are told through scripture that the man on the cross is the definition of greatness. It isn't the Caesar who's great. It isn't the Pharisees, these men of wise learning and renown. It isn't the wealthy aristocrats who would never even go to Golgotha because the blood would stain their shoes. It isn't the philosophers or the poets or the sages in the marketplace. But the gospel tells us that the man who is truly great is the one who's hanging on the tree. That that is real greatness. Do you believe this? Do we believe this? And if we say we believe it, does our life evidence we believe it's true are we trying to be the most humble and lowly person in the room or are we still playing the games of the world and trying to convince everyone that we're better are we trying to get to the top of the ladder or the bottom because jesus is at the bottom i want to pray for us Um. This week, God has revealed in my heart that there are so many of the ways the world defines greatness that are still in here. And even when it comes to like doing something like, like planting a church or sharing the gospel or reading my Bible, I'm finding in myself that I'm still living, even though I'm using Christian terms, I'm still living by the value system of the world of how the world defines greatness, and I want to be great like that. And so I wanna pray for us that Jesus would use his word to convict us and to change us so that we would not just live our lives using the right words, but he would actually live our lives in the right kind of way. And that we'd be the kind of people that when people look at, they would actually start to see a little bit of a representation of this crucified man on the cross, Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, we're such boastful people Lord, you know how much we are like these Christians in Corinth. We've chosen to follow you, but we still think like the world. We love what you've done for us, but so often we don't want to identify with you. And so we see your bruised and bleeding body, and we are thankful, but we don't want to get any closer to you, lest we might be humiliated like you. And so we see your humility in the path that you chose and we are thankful that you chose to walk that path, but very often we would rather take the path the world holds out to us instead. It feels safer, it feels more comfortable, and it allows us to be great in the eyes of the world. And Lord, if we are honest, this is something that we struggle with each and every day. We don't wanna be humbled, we wanna be exalted. And we don't wanna be weak, we wanna be strong. We don't want to be poor, we want to be rich. We don't want to be dependent, we want to be self-reliant. We don't want to be marginalized, we want to be privileged, and we don't want to be crucified, we want to be enthroned. But Jesus, you were all of these things. And the gospel tells us that you are the truly great one. And as much as our hard and fickle hearts are still in love with the world and the values it gives us, we want to follow you. So help us, Jesus. Make us humble. Bring us low. Bring us to the place where you are. In your name. Amen. We're going to take communion together. In